It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you solve your marketing problems and grow your e-commerce business. Cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and advice from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Chloe and it is awesome to have you out there listening. In today's episode, we are getting deep into the world of marketing strategy, but do not be scared. This is the sort of thing which is going to help you separate the wheat from the chaff, help you work out what you really should be focusing on in order to grow your business. Because you're in for a real treat today because we've got we've got a guy on who has 25 years of experience getting consumers to spend money from the comfort of their own homes for some of the biggest retail brands in the UK. Now, without the sponsors, the podcast wouldn't be possible. So please do check them out. This episode is brought to you by SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Save time and money no matter what you ship or mail with the SendPro Online software. Print shipping labels and stamps right from your desk and access discounted rates for as low as $4.99 per month. Try it free for 30 days and get a free £10 scale when you visit pb.com forward slash masterplan. That's pb.com slash masterplan. This episode is brought to you by the world's first pay-as-you-grow e-commerce platform, ShopIt. Supporting online sellers of every size, ShopIt gives every customer every feature they need to run an e-commerce business from day one, irrespective of their turnover. You can grow your empire with multiple websites, full inventory management and more, all from one central login. What's more, you only pay for usage, so you can focus your budgets on your growth marketing. Plus, there's a lifetime low 1.6% payment gateway rate for everyone. ShopIt really do support growing businesses. Sign up for your free trial now at shopitcommerce.com forward slash masterplan. And now to introduce today's special guest. As his LinkedIn profile states, Tony Preedy has been a marketing professional in the home shopping sector since 1991. Yes, today's guest has over 25 years of experience getting the British and overseas public to spend money from the comfort of their own homes, including working for brands such as Lakeland, Otto, Littlewoods and more. I'm really excited to have someone with such great experience at the e-commerce world, in fact, experience of the e-commerce world before it even really existed on the show today, because I just know he's going to share us, share some great tidbits from his years of experience with all of us. Hello, Tony. Hey, Chloe. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, no, thank you for coming on. That, that We could spiral into a world of thank yous there. Uh, so <laughs> I've given the audience a really quick overview of you and a little bit of your experience, kind of some of the some of the bullet points. But let's go right back to the beginning. How did you get started in e-commerce in the first place? So my first job when I left university was working for a company called GUS Home Shopping, which was part of GUS PLC back in those days. Um, that company no longer exists, but it became Experian, Argos, and Burberry. So those were the group companies. Um, and what was GUS Home Shopping is nowadays part of what is Shop Direct Group. So uh, I worked for GUS in its various incarnations for about 15 years, starting from the early 90s, and uh, was into direct marketing, first of all. That's sort of where I got my schooling. When I joined GUS, it was as a direct marketeer, so I was creating mailings. But that took us into the whole issue around 
the segmentation of customers and cost per response, um, return on investment, customer lifetime value. So those were familiar concepts um, to us at GUS in the 90s. And then the website side of things sort of came along around 98, 99, I guess, end of the 90s, beginning of the thousands. And that's when we started to add um, e-commerce to the mix. I was working alongside people who could remember when GUS first started taking telephone orders. And up until that point, everything had been through the post. When the 90s, people were still sending a lot of orders in through the post, indeed through fax machines, if you can believe that. Um, but um, uh, e-commerce sort of came along as another channel to be added. And um, being in home shopping, it seems a fairly natural way to start to show people products and to generate orders instead of generating catalogs we were effectively creating digital catalogs digital websites um, and so it, it grew quite naturally from the from the, the systems and processes that were already there to support that home shopping business and then as time went on we learned um, modern merchandising techniques and how to use digital marketing and digital communications and add to the mix of offline communications that GUS was already very practiced in. It often um, strikes me as someone who was kind of not quite to your depth of schooling in the direct mail world, but who was schooled in, you know, my my retail career started off with catalogues, is that the lessons you learn from that, the discipline and the fundamental principles are so essential as a part of doing e-commerce successfully, you know, in this new multi-channel, incredibly complex world we now did play the game in? Well, in some respects, life was simpler then. Um, I still think one of the biggest challenges that modern business people have is attribution of marketing spend. Trying to understand return on investment is nowadays extremely challenging. But back when I started, we were able to measure response rates to two decimal places because everybody quoted a response code. And you could only respond if you had some sort of account or reference number. So response attribution and the ability to, for example, test different contact strategies for impact was straightforward. It's actually got harder as time's gone on, as the number of contact channels has increased. Our, the ability to be able to discern cause and effect has got tougher. Um, but the principles um, of the things that we try to do nowadays of allocating sales to the marketing activities that we believe generated it. Um, those, those, those were lessons I learned 25 years ago. Do you, a slightly controversial question here, uh, but do you think there's still a place for the direct mail in a successful e-commerce operation? I do, actually. I, it's unfashionable, um, but I think the evidence is there that good quality direct marketing generate a return on investment. I believe marketing to be an investment, not a cost. In other words, it has to have a yield and you can't carry on doing it until such time as the marginal return on any incremental investment is zero. And direct marketing can definitely play a part in a communications program with consumers. I'm not saying that it's the only tool you'll use, but it's often a, a very efficient tool. And Getting, for example, customers to visit a website to buy products, a catalog remains one of the most efficient ways of doing so if you get your targeting right and other aspects of the creative. So, um, you know, a lot of people are being trained by Google to believe that 
Google PPC is the way to drive traffic to websites, um, when in fact the cost of a click now is starting to approach the cost of a stamp, and it may well be more may be actually more efficient to to post a catalog to people. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. The click is is, is the same as the cost of a cost of a stamp because, of course, postage is the biggest cost in any piece of direct mail activity. But I want I want to come before we get get into the world of post and Google. Um, I want to get come back to something you said there, Tony. You said that marketing is an investment and you should continue to invest until the marginal gains run out. That's a, a really interesting way of thinking about it, and I I guess. Could you explain a little bit more about how that works in works in practice? So the concept is that clearly we're selling products. That's usually what most marketers are doing. We're simply trying to um, drive sales into products, but products are bought by customers. And so what in fact we're doing is seeking to generate sales from a cohort of customers. And so if you take customer management as a task, you are taking a cohort of customers, by which I mean a set of customers that are broadly alike, maybe in terms of how long they've traded with your business, perhaps in terms of other characteristics such as historic spend patterns. And you're examining them and you're saying, what can I do to this group of people over a period of time in order to improve their value to my business? In other words, generate more sales than the cost of those sales, if you see what I mean. So you, you can only invest up until the point that the contribution from the sales you're generating more than pays for the cost of the marketing or else you're going backwards. And so that co- you, what you've effectively got is the idea of a group of customers into whom you invest in order to increase their value over time. And you can undertake tests where you take, say, a fraction of a group of customers and expose them to communications A and another part of that same group and give them communication series B, one of which may be more expensive than the other, one of which may be using different techniques than the other, and you measure the impact on that group of customers. And having understood perhaps your ability to influence the behavior of customers over time, it then influences uh, your customer acquisition strategy. Because if you are seeking to make money on your first order, fantastic. You can carry on doing so until you struggle to recruit customers profitably. But it's not. It's quite usual to find that actually you need to sell to a customer a few times before you have recovered the cost of acquiring that customer in the first place. And so understanding what leverage you have on customer uh, behavior once recruited strongly influences what you can afford to spend on acquiring them in the first place. I suppose those the, the place we've reached now in uh, you know 2019 compared to where we were for most of the 2010s is that we can actually take that a b testing philosophy at, at the audience level you know these people will get x and these people will get y and we can replicate that across the great majority of paid online channels as well as offline we can do email in the same way we can do ads in the same way if we use audience integrations so actually you can construct an entire sequence of multi-channel marketing activity and segment that by one audience gets this set and one audience gets that set, which could be these guys get Facebook ads, these guys don't, or it could be these get video Facebook ads and these don't get video Facebook ads and everything else is, is the same, which is actually quite an exciting place to be as a marketer. 
It is it is truly exciting, but it is complex, and I, I don't want to pretend that it's easy. I, I, I over the years have done a great deal of work trying to understand response attribution and return on investment economics, and have time and time again gone back to this concept of trying to grow customer value in groups over time. And I wouldn't say that I've given up trying to do campaign level attribution, but I've, I, I find it less important than the customer level value measurement because trying to work out what ex, which combination of actions yielded a particular result you, you can test yourself to craziness if you're not careful. Um, and one, one of my favorite uh, authors is a guy called Nate Silver, who wrote a fantastic book called The Signal and the Noise. And one of the things he talks about in that book is the importance of robust statistics when, when evaluating and measuring things. Because I, I've seen masses amount of test activity that is ultimately futile because the test design is flawed and effectively what you're observing could well be random. And so when you try to work out every last nuance of difference between one group and another, you, you, you can drive yourself nuts. Whereas if what you're doing is taking fairly large changes and applying them to large groups of people, you can come up with statistically robust results reasonably quickly. And when we're talking large groups of people, just to make sure the listeners are understanding, we're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in each segment. It depends on the on the nature of the business and the um, scale of the difference that you're trying to measure. So, going back to my Gus days, I uh, I am old enough to be to have started work before computers were on desks, and we had log tables. You know, we literally would work out our test and control groups and our sample sizes using log tables. Nowadays, we we just go on Google and do it. Um, or go on the internet and do it for sure because there's tools available. So essentially, you you have to go and tell a uh, a maths process. This is how many people I've got to play with. This is the size of measurement I'm trying to take, and it will tell you what your sample size needs to be. Um, everyone who's out there listening, we're not going to go any any into further into how you calculate that. Go and Google um, statistical significance if you want to. Look into that. Um, I'll save both both me and Tony from from diving deeper into that right now. Um, now, Tony, you said also in, in that that section that for you the the testing starts at the customer level. We're not talking about you know sending out an email to fifty percent of the list and fifty percent of the list. We're talking about here's a group of customers that we want to focus on improving things on, and that's where it all starts. The segmentation starts with the customer, not with the marketing method. Absolutely. So, um, channel is the last thing to utilize. It's usually the selection tech, the selection tool for the message. It's not usually the dimension you use when segmenting. Um, I mean, like pretty much all the things I'm going to say, there are always exceptions to every rule. But generally speaking, I would segment on tenure. So I would certainly look at new customers different from existing customers. I'd look at recency. So um, new customers are, are almost by definition recent customers, but other customers have similar recency. Um, but you may have customers you recruited last year, some of whom are trading very well, have purchased from you several times since that first order, some of whom have done nothing since that first order. So um, tenure is a really important dimension, and then recency and frequency and value would be the, the 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 classic dimensions to use. And then once you've gone beyond 
RFM, then you'll start to look at other things, other behavioral characteristics, like which may be if you're a multi-category merchant, it may be looking at uh, which categories people are purchasing from. You can then start to develop strategies to either get them to buy from the same category again or to sell them in, into an adjacent or supporting category. Excellent explanation. Thank you. Now, post your Gus days, you moved on to work at Lakeland, which uh, certainly our UK listeners will know of as a uh, multi-channel retailer with high street stores, as well as catalogues, as well as a, a fantastic website service too. Uh, many of our international customers will know that as well. So how how did you you find this adapted to the to the world of multi-channel when you got involved at Lakeland? Before I joined Lakeland, I'd done about eight. 18 years or so in home shopping businesses that were principally distance selling businesses in one form or another, whether that was through catalogs, through digital marketing and e-commerce. Lakeland was all of those things, but it was also stores. And so understanding how to use store level marketing to, um, to create a outcome at customer level um, was really, really interesting but also challenging, not least because in Lakeland's case, the vast majority of those sales are anonymous. It is the least trackable sales channel, isn't it, by far, the retail? Um, yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm aware of some retailers that are generating 70% plus customer identification at the point of purchase, um, largely by GDPR compliant data collection at the point of purchase tends to work best in relatively low frequency, relatively high value environments. But I can think of clothing and footwear retailers that are achieving that sort of level of penetration. Um, Tesco's is probably the most famous grocer that is similarly achieving that level of penetration, but with its club card product. Um, so yes, you can track, um, but for the vast majority of retailers, you just don't know who walked in that door. And you are trying to influence physical behavior using direct marketing, including digital marketing. But the attribution is a, is a pain. And the, I guess the other side of the attribution challenge with retail is you've also got the, the sales targets for the shops and all of that side of thing, which, you know, it, you have to have the store team at all levels in the business on board if it's going to work, don't you? Yes, it's commonplace. Well, relatively common, not certainly ubiquitous to have retailers set geographic boundaries around their stores and to assign all sales from that geography, including e-commerce sales, to that store on the assumption that the store is likely to have influenced customers in that geography in some way, whether it's simply through awareness by being there or whether it's the fact that the customer walked into the store, had a look at the products and ultimately chose to buy online at home on a later date. Uh, so that that sort of form of attribution is now fairly normal, um, but it's still tough trying to work out how much of your uh, online sales and your online marketing budget should be assigned to your store channel. And equally, put it the other way around, how much of the rent and rates and staff costs in your retail stores are actually properly assigned to your e-commerce channel. I have to say, I am fairly cynical about a lot of the work that goes on around channel profitability because I, I think it's pretty futile. Um, it's back to my Nate Silver thing. I, I'm not convinced that we're really detecting truth. I think what we're really doing is moving money around. And the answer is, 
a function of the assumptions you make in the allocation process. What really matters is the brand and how customers perceive the brand and whether you think you're gaining market share. Yeah, I think there there can be there does re- reach a point with any kind of analysis or attribution where you you're just kind of like coming up with an answer to keep the board happy a lot of the time rather than actually doing anything which actually improves performance. Uh, the, you know, it, it is clearly a a material question for many retailers. I mean, in the news around the time we're speaking, Majestic Wine are contemplating closing all their shops in order to go digital only. I mean, that's massive. There are lots of retailers, as is, as is well documented, that are working in an environment where physical footfall is declining. And that was a challenge for us when I was at Lakeland. It was um, trying to understand the interaction between the stores, which were generally speaking in shopping environments where footfall was, was declining, and their contribution towards the overall business. And the, I guess the the other side of that is you look at some of the businesses that started as pure play online, like Made.com and and others, who have now got physical retail stores where maybe you can take product home, maybe it's purely a showroom. So it, it I think it's going to be, it's been interesting over the last 10 years, seeing how that offline, online world are learning to live with each other. But I think, think there's a lot more evolution to come in that space. I think... I, I mean, we, we've already discussed how ancient I am and how my experience predates the internet and all that stuff. Um, but I think that when digital directors or di- you know digital this, digital that sort of cropped up, it, it, it had a fairly short lifespan because it was a channel orientation that ultimately wasn't customer or brand oriented. And so you're now starting to see those fall back into roles which are multi-channel or omni-channel roles of which digital is no doubt an important part but but are more generic roles when when we're looking at the overall subject of growth we're having to 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 look at that sort of total picture rather than the um trying to assign everything down to the uh, to the channel level and that might mean that for example rent becomes a part of the marketing budget because it's regarded as analogous to the money that's spent on brand advertising on TV or on digital media. Makes perfect sense. Um, now, you just brought up the topic of brand there and you've worked for some big consumer brands and yet, and being marketing director of big consumer brands, and yet we've been talking very much about more direct to customer marketing methods thus far. So in the jobs you've had, have you have you allocated a percentage of spend to brand awareness or has it always been about creating a seamless brand or a consistent brand, I should say, across other channels and allowing that to do your brand awareness for you? Well, there's two points here. One is the brand is probably, and managing the brand is probably one of the most important things that a marketing director will do. So there's the basics around what does the brand look like? Is it consistent? Um, does it have a, um, a distinctive style about it that means that it has good recognition factors? But it's really about managing the experience and therefore what does the brand stand for? What do consumers perceive it to be like? personifying the brand and so those softer side the softer side of marketing if you will the not the less financial side of marketing are tremendously important but when deciding to invest in amplifying that brand message once you've created it and using 
brand building techniques, whether that's PR or sponsorship or advertising. As we've been discussing, the attribution of that spend is tough, but you have to sort of do something. You have to use some rule of thumb that does create some sort of relationship between your brand activity, your level of awareness and saliency, and your turnover, and you invest accordingly to to your beliefs. And then you've also got very involved, certainly of late, in the world of marketplaces, where brand is a whole other question. But how have, rather than us get into that, how have you found that marketplaces are changing the game yet again? Marketplaces are convenient for customers. And nowadays, so at the sort of the end of this first decade of the 21st century, I think what you're really getting is customers that are either using search engines to buy products or find products, or they're using marketplaces. Uh, often, sometimes the customers are doing, but are traveling in both spaces. But broadly speaking, you've got PPC and digital marketing operating for one cohort of customers, and then you've got marketplaces for another. And just as huge shopping malls um, become destinations for uh, physical retail, marketplaces are the destination for millions and millions of shoppers who have basically decided they want to buy something and are simply looking for a for a way to execute that that transaction so marketplaces are growing really fast because consumers like them they're convenient they're efficient and for retailers they are i think essential nowadays if if it, it, it's, it would be foolhardy, I think, to believe that you can grow your business without using marketplaces. I guess it comes back to the customer, doesn't it? If that's where the customer wants to be and wants to buy your product, then that's where you should be. Precisely. You can't be King Canute sat there on the beach commanding the waves to retreat. You know, marketplaces are not going away. So either you choose to play or, you, or choose not to play. But I, you know, I, I think you're turning off a fairly significant value creation opportunity if you choose not to use marketplaces. That's not to say that there aren't issues with using marketplaces. There are many issues. Um, certainly, as a retailer that's used Amazon, and talking about my experience, we we grew Lakeland's business on marketplaces from nothing to many millions of pounds in a relatively short period of time, all on a, a marketing model, so on a cost per, cost per order basis. Um, however, that it does create issues as well as solving others. And these days you're working for a marketplace. So I guess with that hat on, are there any particular piece of advice you'd have for uh, retailers who haven't yet taken that marketplace jump, who have their own products and, and want to get a slice of that pie? Uh, marketplaces are a great way to discover opportunity. So they are where the world is shopping. And if you're a brand or if you're a retailer, particularly if you're a retailer with original product rather than simply selling other people's products, then listing your products on marketplaces, the obvious ones like Amazon and eBay. I work for a company called Frugo, which specializes in cross-border e-commerce. But there are tens of, if not hundreds of marketplaces around the world where customers are shopping and buying every day. If you want to have your product seen in those environments, then you need to participate and then you need to learn how to generate sales within those environments. I think that last one's a really important point because it's not like you just list the products and wait for the sales to come in. You also have to put a bit of effort into learning how to market on there, just like you would learn how to market on Facebook or on Google. And I think a lot of the techniques that we've known about for a long time 
in terms of search engine optimization for websites, for example, boil down to compelling copywriting that uh, allows consumers to discover what excited you about this product when you chose to sell it. You know, as a retailer, we're curators of products, generally speaking. We're selecting or we're creating products and we have a passion for those. So how does one communicate that passion to the potential purchaser when all you have to work with, generally speaking, is copy and images? And so that's been the world of e-commerce for a long time. But for marketplaces, it's doubly so because your stand, you know, your opportunity to dif- differentiate is largely down to the way in which you can describe and excite people about the product you're selling. E-commerce master plan is supported by some of the greatest companies in the e-commerce sector. Here's a reminder of who they are. Don't waste any more time waiting in line to send mail and packages. With Sempro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can send packages and mail without leaving your office for as low as $4.99 per month. And because you're an e-commerce master plan listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started, plus a free £10 scale shipped right to your door to help you accurately weigh your packages. Save time and money no matter what you send with this new offer for SendPro Online. Starting at only $4.99 per month. You can print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer, easily compare rates using the online software, gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping, plus track all of your shipments and get email notifications when they have arrived. Go to pb.com forward slash master plan to access this special offer. Get a free 30-day trial and a free £10 scale to get started. That's pb.com slash master plan. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of Send Pro Online from Pitney Bowes. If you want the best opportunity to scale your growing online business without needing to always upgrade or pay for costly plugins, then Shopit is the answer. The world's first pay-as-you-grow e-commerce platform has no upfront costs, can support a multi-channel strategy and helps you focus your money on driving traffic and sales, which is why you started a business in the first place. On average, Shopit clients pay just 0.5% of their turnover for next generation tech, meaning you can be selling while you're sleeping. Shopit believes in equal opportunities and making it easier for you to be a success. Get your free trial now at shopitcommerce.com forward slash master plan. It's time for the top tips round. I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So, Tony, are you ready for the top tips? Here we go. Okay, the book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? So my top tip is a book called Scientific Advertising by a guy called Claude Hopkins. Claude is a Victorian. He lived 1866 to 1932, and he wrote his book Scientific Advertising to describe his life as an advertising copywriter in the States. He wrote it in 1923. It is the original book about direct marketing and, believe it or not, e-commerce. He was talking about testing. He was talking about customer lifetime value, about the return on investment, and about the difference good copywriting can make on response rates and on ultimately on sales. Uh, I think everybody who works in any form of retailing, digital marketing, direct selling should read Claude's book. Excellent tip. And I am 99% sure you're the first person to mention it on the podcast. So that's awesome. Okay. The traffic top tip. Which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? 
Well, I'm on a bit of a theme here, but I'm going to say copywriting. So uh, I think it's an underused and undervalued uh, discipline within the within the, the business, within the e-commerce business. I think crafting your um, product benefits into short, succinct, powerfully written bullet points is really important. And then being able to convey the benefit of your products either in a short form which is often then used as the product title or the long form, which is then used as the product description, is probably one of the most important levers you can pull if you're looking to generate more sales. Okay, the tool top tip, maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day? So Frugo is a distributed uh, business in the sense that we have people all over the world. And so we are using the normal tools that most people are using nowadays. We use Slack for instant messaging. Uh, we're using uh, collaboration tools to exchange, uh, to work on projects uh, together, such as Jira. So uh, nothing terribly exciting or unusual, but certainly the concept of needing to be in the same place in order to work together, I think that's that's long gone. Yeah, thankfully. Think of think of the carbon footprint. Okay, the growth top tip. If you met someone today who's focused on growing their e-commerce business from 100 orders per month to 1,000, what would be your number one tip for them? So uh, I would say under-promise, over-deliver. So if you can more than deliver on customer expectations, then you can build a reputation that spreads through word of mouth and nowadays is amplified by social media you will build a reputation as being an expert or as being reliable in your sector. And if you can add to that, that you stand for something, so you have a point of view or you are distinctive in some other way, then you've got a second uh, string to your bow. You can both be believed as a credible provider of your product or service, and you can be relied upon to give customers the solution they're looking for. Oh, that's almost a mantra for life, isn't it? Under promise, over deliver. Neither too extreme. Um, okay, Tony, before we say goodbye, could you please let the listeners know a little bit more about Frugo and where they can find you and Frugo on the web and social media, please? So I work for frugo.com. Uh, we are a cross-border marketplace business that exists to generate sales for retailers. We only earn a commission, therefore we earn no money if we generate no sales. So retailers have a no-risk sales growth opportunity if they join Frugo because they don't pay us unless we give them sales. And what we specialize in is helping them with cross-border e-commerce. So a retailer gives Frugo a single data feed, so products, prices, and inventory in their own language and in their own currency. And we then convert it into over 32 countries and all the language and currency combinations required to do so. Having already done all of the local payment method integrations necessary to operate in 32 countries and generate sales for them by undertaking digital marketing on their behalf in all of those places. So a retailer in one part of the world can reach customers in another part of the world that otherwise would have had very little likelihood of ever finding their products. All of which, as I said, is done on a no risk, no fee basis. Sounds like a great way to, um, to explore overseas marketplaces with very little risk. We find a lot of retailers discover 
niches they never would have imagined existed and sometimes will then go and further exploit that market by investing in upper funnel brand building activity in that market leaving frugo to actually be the basis on which their sales are generated because they don't want the hassle of translating all of their uh, product details into whichever language that is or dealing with the currency risk that frugo has to manage for them when you shop with when you, when you trade with frugo as a retailer you you know you're always going to get paid a known amount in your own currency for the products you sell and you can hand off all the responsibility for marketing to frugo so um there's no um no downside as far as retailers are concerned but what they often do is discover how their products are being sold into different markets and then see if they can then expand their sales or distribution channels in those markets. Very nice. Well, Tony, thanks for telling us a bit more about Frugo there. And thank you so much for going. We went into some great depth there around marketing, sensible marketing concepts and how to go about building a successful business. So I really thank you for coming on and, and spending some time sharing your experience with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, Chloe. Thank you for having me. How great there to dive into the real fundamentals of marketing with someone with so much experience of getting customers to buy from home. And I think the real the real core things there are is that it is all about the customer. It's all about working out how you could improve the lifetime value of that customer, looking at your new customers and what can you do to turn them into repeats to make sure they buy from you more frequently. What can you do with lapsed customers? And what can you do to get them buying from you again? Rather than thinking about marketing channels, think about the customers and the best way to get them to do what you want them to do. Also, some great tips there from Tony around the marketplaces, using Frugo to go international really simply and uh, and much more. I think I shall be be having a listen to this one a couple of times through to make sure I've got everything out of it, including those two great book recommendations, The Signal and the Noise and Scientific Ads. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these kind of in-depth discussions with people with huge amounts of insight and experience, just let me know. You can find out how to contact me via the website and you can find all the episodes together with the top tips and links and details of this episode at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast. Keep optimising. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com slash podcast.